In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these appear in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and hello. Hope you're well. So tonight, we continue with this most difficult material ever. And uh, we'll try to go through what's relevant and I think we skip around a bit because I didn't find all of it to be uh, that relevant. So my uh, recollection is that we ended off on page 302, uh, just before the section called the eight modes of pervasion of a consequence, which is in the chapter called reasoning and rationality which is chapter 19, and it's within part five. Part five, chapter 19, and we are about halfway through that chapter. And before we dive into this, Let's take a quick look at uh, some of these handouts that I circulated. So, so three-part syllogism for inferential valid cognition. The easiest way to look at this is that A, the subject, is B, the predicate, because it is C, which is called the reason. In our text, this um, C is called what? The evidence. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's correct. So um, A is B because B is C and A is C. Potential faults. A is not C. What is that called? That's uh, one of the three modes. It fails one of the three modes if A is not C. What is that? Invalid subject? Right, it's the subject. The, uh, it fails the subject reason of the three modes. The reason does not apply to the subject. And then the second one, if B is not equal to C, is the uh, failing the forward pervasion, that all of B should be C. Okay, so then we have uh, some examples. Subject is sound, the predicate is impermanent. And this is, these are probandums. And uh, the subject of this probandum is sound. The predicate is impermanent. Predicate is what we're asserting. 
And the reason or evidence is because it is compounded. And these are nature reasons. We'll go through in tonight then the three types of reasons. The self is empty because it is compounded and impermanent. <laughs> What's wrong with that syllogism? Is the self compounded and, per and impermanent? No, it doesn't exist. Thank you, sir. <laughs> That's what's wrong with that syllogism. <laughs> so the idea of the self, I guess, or the way that the self is thought about is as something that is compounded and, and impermanent. And therefore empty. Anyway, dharmas are empty because they're neither one nor many, and they're dependently arisen. They're also compounded and impermanent. But the funny thing is, you could say that about all these, to some extent, you know, so what's the difference between saying that the self does not exist and therefore this syllogism is invalid? versus saying that sound does not exist and therefore it's, you can't say it's compounded. The self is, does not exist on the, either the conventional or the ultimate level. Sound uh, has conventional manifestation, but not ultimate existence. Same with dharmas. These are all nature um, reasons. It's the nature of sound to be compounded, and therefore it's impermanent. It's the nature of dharmas to be neither one nor many. Um, neither. Why are they neither one nor many? Because they're compounded. Why are they dependently arisen? Because they depend on causes and conditions, I guess. Uh, dependent arising has two types, two things. It, it's dependent upon causes and conditions or it's dependent upon parts. A deer, there are deer living here because there are deer droppings. That's an effect type of syllogism uh, using a reason type called effect. Where are we here? Um, let's see. How come I can't put a, can I put a number in there? Yeah, one, one, five. Okay. By the way, can you tell me if I, can you see the, the column that says type of reasons now on my screen? Yes. Yes. I can't because the Zoom screen of all your view covers it. You, you should that. be able to make this go away. I know, but I, I can't see you and that at the same time. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Shrink it, right? Okay. There's fire on the mountain 
because it's a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> Is anyone familiar with that song? Yes. How, how does it go? Fire on the mountain. <laughs> it's just a fire, fire on the mountain. That's the, the words. The majority of the words are fire on the mountain. <laughs> anyway, there's fire is on the mountain because there's smoke on the mountain. Um, okay, non-observation. Children of barren women do not exist because barren women don't have children. Horns of a hare don't exist because hares don't have horns. They have hair. The structure of a syllogism. Uh, maybe I should have done this one first. The subject is the subject. The predicate is the is the predicate. <laughs> In the statement, the subject is the predicate because it is the reason. The subject of that statement is the subject, and the predicate of that statement is the predicate, and the reason for saying that the subject is the predicate is because it's also the reason. And, there, and the reason applies to the predicate. So we have a diagram that shows the subject within the reason, within the predicate, a nesting. Sound is the subject is impermanent because it's produced a lemon is a fruit because it is a citrus. So here we have a lemon is the smallest oval, right? And then the reason is it's a citrus. That's the middle ring grouping. And then it's all, both of those sit within the huge grouping of those phenomena which are impermanent. I'm sorry, which are fruit. So lemons, all lemons are citrus and all citrus are fruits. Uh, the color of a red car is the subject and it's a color because it is red. So a particular color, a particular instance of red, like cherry red is red, sits within red because and it's uh, a color. All, all red colors, all reds sit within color. Anyway, the three modes of a correct reason and the probandum or proof statement that they prove. The first mode. So uh, the first mode of the three modes of a correct reason is that the reason applies to all instances of the subject. So we saw that above. Um, sound, all sound is produced. All lemons are citrus. All red cars are within the uh, grouping of red phenomena or red colored things. So the subject sits within the reason in terms of the nesting or the uh, Venn diagrams. The reason applies to all instances of the subject. 
Citrus applies to all instances of lemons. Produced applies to all instances of sound. And red applies to all instances of the red of the color of a red card. The second mode, the reason is included in the predicate. So, uh, produced is included within impermanent. Everything produced is impermanent. Everything citrus is in fruit. Everything red is a color. The third mode, that which is not the predicate, is not included in the reason. Whatever um, is not impermanent. Whatever is not impermanent is not produced. Whatever is not a fruit is not a citrus. And whatever is not a color is not the red. So whatever is not um, of the larger group can also never be part of the smaller group. Those are the three modes. The probandum, that which is to be proven. The subject is the predicate, is what is to be proven. Sound is imperfect. Lemon is the fruit, and so forth. Okay. Uh, this one's too complicated. And this one is too long. But they go through the same material except that they here they call the pervasions the subject quality the um what did we call it here uh, i lost it the subject quality and then the forward inclusion or pervasion and the reverse the reverse is the, the negative of the predicate must be the negative of the reason. So here we have uh, sound is impermanent because it's produced. An example, oh, we have an example, the finger snap. The subject quality, the reason that valid cognition has determined the reason that valid cognition has determined to be present in all instances of the flawless subject. So it has to be the real subject, not like a fake sound or something. And the flawless subject in question in a corresponding formulation. So sound is produced. That's the subject quality. In the syllogism, sound is impermanent because it's produced. All sounds are produced. The forward inclusion, a reason that has been determined to be present only in the concordant class, meaning that there's a concordance between the reason and the predicate. So whatever is produced is impermanent. Sound being produced is therefore impermanent. The reverse inclusion, a reason that has been determined not to be present in a single instance of the non-concurrent class. Alternately, you could say a reason that has been determined not to be present in any of the non-concurrent class. Whatever is not impermanent is not produced. Whatever is produced is impermanent, and then the opposite, whatever is impermanent is not produced. 
Okay, so then let's apply that or take that understanding into our um, going through the text here. So in, uh, as mentioned earlier, page 302. Moreover, there is an explanation of eight modes of pervasion in terms of how the pervasion of a consequence is ascertained. How are they using the term consequence? So we are, um, it's a type of reasoning. So it's a type of proof statement. Wow. Um, there are eight types of consequence in terms of their modes of pervasion. The eight modes of pervasion of a consequence are the actual positive pervasion, the inverse, the actual converse, the inverse converse, the actual negative, the inverse negative, the actual contradictory, and the inverse contradictory. Among these four are actual and four are inverse. So in more detail, the actual positive pervasion of something that has consequences evidence as its property. So if the subject has um, the reason as its uh, one of its qualities, then it must also have the consequences predicate as its property. Is the is the uh, simplest version of the second mode, the, the forward pervasion. Consequences defined in glossary as consequence, logical consequence or consequential reasoning is a formally structured argument designed to uproot a wrong view. So we're, we're in the prasanga section of reasoning using consequence consequential reasoning it usually has the form of if a then b and or alternatively if not b then not a a logical consequence can be valid without the two parties in debate having a commonly accepted valid knowledge of its components so this is the type of reasoning that's used in Madhyamaka reasoning, where the where one member of the two members, the two parties involved in the discussion, does not take the um, existence of the uh, per, the particulars, meaning the uh, subject and the predicate and the evidence, to actually be existent, but instead that. Madhyamaka person can take the proposition presented by the person who believes in true existence of phenomena and unpack it using consequential reasoning as we've been through. There's affirming consequences and refuting consequences. Personally, I did not find this 
whole eightfold schema of uh, any help. So I'm gonna we we sort of went into a little bit and. Um, I'm going to skip to the end of it, if that's okay. Uh, well, just briefly, there's... Um, No, they separate uh, sort of correct consequential reasoning or positive versus fallacious consequential reason or negative consequential reasoning. But again, uh, not very helpful. So I'm going to skip to proof statements, which is the next section. When someone has a doubt oscillating between two standpoints, which occurs once his distorted conviction has been removed by means of a consequence. So after we uproot somebody's uh, mistaken beliefs by demonstrating the unwanted consequence of that person's views, they then remain in an, uh, a situation of doubt where they're oscillating between the various remaining options and not quite ready to commit to it, to the correct one. Um, that doubt must be eliminated through the use of a proof statement. After you've pulled the rug out, then you need to give them uh, something to stand on the correct version. A correct proof statement, a flawless statement of evidence and an inference for the purpose of others. So in other words, this is not something that one would do for, need to do for oneself. It is a correct, or synonymous, it is a correct proof statement because it is a statement expressing a correct proof. It is a flawless statement of evidence because it is a statement of correct evidence characterized by the three modes which we just went through. And it is an inference for the purpose of others because its purpose is to make someone else realize the thesis and it is the cause of the resulting inference. So um, it leads a person to develop a um, develop a correct thesis and um, and uh, which leads to a correct conclusion. In the logic of language, Mokshakara Gupta says, for the purpose of others indicates that which is for the sake of others. Inference for others is a statement. It is a statement that demonstrated three modes of correct evidence causes others to realize, i.e. understand it. So even though it's a verbal statement, it can metaphorically be referred to as an inference. So it can be verbalized, but um, it's a verbal statement but it produces an inference. The definition of an inference for the purpose of others is a flawless two-part statement demonstrating the three modes of the evidence seen 
by the proponent's own valid cognition to the opponent without any fault in wording the reference and cognition. The two parts of the are the part expressing the pervasion and the part expressing the evidence as an attribute of the subject are the two essential parts of a correct syllogism and the the pervasion has a positive and a negative version when it's taught that a correct proof statement must have four distinctive features those are distinctive causal feature there must be a prior valid cognition that has already realized what is to be demonstrated so in order to demonstrate to uh, lead others to conclusion you must have understood it yourself distinctive feature of the subject matter must express its subject matter the three modes of correct evidence without any fault of excess or omission it must pass the test of the three modes distinctive feature of its character must be free of any faults of the three wording factual reference and cognition must be stated properly and be based in uh, fact or reality and be uh, verifiable by valid cognition distinctive functional feature it must actually produce its effect so if the person doesn't realize the inference it has not uh, cannot be called a uh, correct proof statement the false and wording factual reference and cognition refer to the following when a proof statement demonstrates the three modes of the three modes are established with respect to the facts but not established by a valid the valid cognition of the proponent and the opponent then this is a fault of cognition if the three modes are not established with respect to the facts then this is a fault of factual reference and if the three modes are expressed excessively or insufficiently then this is a fault of wording in the compendium of valid cognition by dharma Kirti, he says inference for the purpose of others makes clear the facts that one has already seen seen by oneself the phrase seen by oneself indicates that it is not enough for the three modes demonstrated by a proof statement to be merely accepted by the opponent rather they must be ascertained by the valid cognition of both the proponent and the opponent so uh, it has to go beyond just sort of a tacit acceptance it has to actually lead to to a, uh, a cognition a, a valid inferential cognition uh, the word facts indicates that it is not enough for the three modes demonstrated by a proof statement to be posited by scriptural citation alone or rumor rather the empirical facts must be established as an object of valid cognition the phrase makes clear indicates that when demonstrating three modes to an opponent by means of a proof statement so as to produce a recollecting awareness that recalls the three modes it must be free from the faults of exceeding the three modes and of not satisfying them it must be just right doesn't not excessive or not deficient dharma kirti says wait uh, somebody else in the exposition of alicarch some say that since it is others who are to be instructed through the proof statement the evidence that is understood by the other even if it is not seen by one by oneself is a means of proof the words seen by oneself serve to counter this false opinion so it has to be both parties passages such as these extents show extensively that a correct proof statement must be free from the faults 
in all those characteristics, wording, factual reference, and um, uh, valid cognition by both parties. An example of a proof statement with faulty wording is sound is impermanent because it's produced. An example is a pot. And just as a pot is produced, so sound is produced. Therefore, sound is impermanent. A proof statement such as this has the fault of being both excessive and an insufficient statement. By explicitly expressing its thesis, sound is impermanent. This proof statement has the fault of excessive wording. By <laughs> saying more. Also, it has the fault of repetition because the application of the example to the case at hand, and just as a pot is produced, so sound is produced, repeats the expression of the evidence as an attribute of the subject because it is produced in the conclusion, therefore sound is permanent, repeats the expression of the thesis, sound is impermanent. So don't be wordy. <laughs> don't, don't be... Don't repeat yourself. It is said this kind of faulty proof statement has five parts. The five parts express the thesis, the evidence as an attribute of the subject, and the concordant example, which in this case was um, a pot. Uh, the application of the example to the case at hand and the conclusion. Sorry, uh, where the hell am I? According to both masters, Dignanga and Dharmakirti, uh, affectionately known as D&D, &D, a proof statement having five parts is faulty. So in other traditions, they have this whole system of proof statements having to have these five parts. And uh, Dharmakirti and Dignanga agree that that's excessive and leads to logical, leads to problems. They explain that a proof statement has just two parts express, express, expressing the pervasion and the evidence as an attribute of the subject. There are two types of correct proof statements. A correct proof statement expressing in terms of a homologous case <laughs> and uh, the, a correct proof statement expressed in terms of a heterogeneous case, either like uh, similarity or dissimilarity. The definition of the former is a flawless two-part statement explicitly demonstrating without any faults and wording, factual reference and cognition that the evidence is present only within set of homologous cases of the thesis it establishes. An example is if something is produced, it is pervaded by being impermanent. An example is a pot. Sound is also also proof is also produced sorry through reducing the example the statement applies the example and the evidence as homologous instances of the predicate to be proven hence it is called a correct proof statement expressed in terms of a homologous case the definition of the latter not a ladder that you climb on but the latter of the two cases is uh, that of the heterogeneous case where they're dissimilar is a flawless two-part statement explicitly demonstrating without any fault in wording and factual reference and cognition that the evidence is necessarily absent in the set of heterogeneous cases of the thesis it establishes. 
An example is a proof statement such as if something is permanent, it is pervaded by being unproduced. An example is space, which is not causally conditioned. Sound, on the other hand, is produced. So that was the heterogeneous case. To reducing the example, this statement applies the example and the evidence as heterogeneous instances of the predicate to be negated. Sound, on the other hand, is produced. Hence, it is called a correct proof statement expressed in terms of a heterogeneous case. Tignanga says, homologous example is a case that, similar to the inferential evidence, exists only when the thing to be proven is present. An example is whatever is produced is seen to be impermanent, such as a pot and so on. A heterogeneous example is a case that shows that the inferential evidence does not exist where the thing to be proven is absent. An example is whatever is permanent is seen to be unproduced, such as space and so on. Um, is seen to be unproduced. The purpose of using a correct proof statement expressed in terms of a homologous case, such as proving that sound is impermanent, as evidenced by being produced, is to remove the doubt that being produced is contradictory evidence in the proof that sound is impermanent, which is a, a sort of clunky way of saying that they're synonymous or equivalent or um, a tautology. If something's produced, it's impermanent, and if it's impermanent, it's produced. The purpose of using a correct proof statement expressed in terms of heterogeneous cases, such as proving that sound is impermanent, as evidenced by being produced, which is the opposite of produced as impermanent, impermanent as produced, is to remove the doubt that being produced is inconclusive evidence and the proof that sound is impermanent there goes both ways. Tignaga says, uh, this is the procedure. Both should be stated as antidotes to exclude contradictory and inconclusive evidence. Anyway, that uh, little further subdivision is not that helpful again. With regard to there being many different recipients of and purposes for positing an object in a proof statement, Exposition says, regarding the example of the fact that the thesis is of the nature of the evidence, the uh, predicate is of the na same nature as the reason, or that it is the cause of the evidence. So we have two types of reasons or evidence, two types of evidence. There's nature evidence and causal evidence. It's demonstrated to someone who does not know that relationship. For those who know, the evidence alone is stated and uh, you don't need to point out whether it's a nature or an effect relationship. Therefore, if one knows the relation between evidence and predicate as being nature or evidence, the statement of either one or of the two homologous or heterogeneous examples will by implication recall to mind the other one because they're implicative in that way. 
Dharma Kirti explains how a proof statement needs to be made to those people who have no knowledge of the relation between the evidence and the predicate with regard to the example or the subject, either the intrinsic relation or the causal relation between the evidence and the predicate, the two types of possible relationships. Uh, intrinsic is nature or causal is effect, cause and effect, sometimes called function. Um, so that they may gain an understanding of the two evidence predicate relations. So the types of relationships between the, the uh, predicate, that which is to be proved, and the evidence is of two types. There's nature and, and effect. So those opponents, opponents who are versed in both forms of the pervading relation, yet do not know that the evidence is an attribute of the subject, one must present a proof statement so that they understand just the evidence or just the attribute of the subject separately. However, to those who already know the attribute of the subject and both forms of the pervading relation, meaning nature and effect, one need not posit a proof statement for the purpose of their understanding something they do not yet know. Rather, Dharmakirti states that one must posit a proof statement expressed either in terms of homologous or heterogeneous cases in order to induce simultaneous recollection of all three modes of relationships between the predicate and the evidence. Also, since a correct proof statement expressed in terms of a homologous case shows that the evidence is present only in the set of homologous instances of what is to be proven, one can implicitly know that the evidence is not present in the set of heterogeneous cases of the proof. And conversely, the opposite, the vice versa. Therefore, for a single opponent, a proof statement expressed in terms of either homologous or heterogeneous cases individually is sufficient. You don't need to do, it's not necessarily to do both. In brief, for someone who has ascertained and not forgotten that the evidence is an attribute of the subject, the pervasion is expressed in order to establish the positive and negative pervasions. For someone who has ascertained and not forgotten the positive and negative pervasions, one states that the evidence is an attribute of the subject in order to establish that the evidence is an attribute of the subject. <laughs> you point out those facts. For someone who has ascertained and not forgotten that the evidence is an attribute of the subject along with the positive and negative per pervasions, both are expressed. Also, there are cases in which the proof needs to be expressed first and the three modes are established only after. When someone who has understood the three modes individually is able to recollect them simultaneously, the proof statement posited earlier becomes a correct proof statement for that purpose. The function of proof statements is to give rise to an understanding that simultaneously recollects all three modes of the proof statement. The intrinsic ability to prove the thesis lies really in the three modes and the ability to give rise to the recollection of these lies in the correct statement. Here Dharma Kirti explains how the intrinsic capacity to prove the thesis is correctly located in the evidence that is characterized by the three modes 
and the capacity to directly produce the recollection of the three modes resides in the proof statement expressing them. So everything ties together in a very neat little package. The thesis, the implied content of the proof statement. Now, having briefly explained the topic of proof statements, let's discuss the nature of a thesis implied by a proof statement. In general, the word thesis, or what is to be established, also known as the probandum, can have numerous senses. For example, the term can refer to the purpose for which a per person strives, or to what they act upon, or to the goal of their activity. Here, in this particular context of the science of reasoning, the term thesis refers to the following. Consider someone who on the basis of taking the presence of smoke rising on a mountain pass as the evidence infers the presence of fire. Here the smoke is the evidence or reason and given that what is being proved is the presence of fire on that smoky pass, the existence on that pass, a fire on that pass is the thesis to be proven. Since such a thesis is understood to be, sorry, it's understood on the basis of evidence, it is that which is to be understood. And since it is being inferred by means of evidence, it is the thing to be inferred by evidence. It is the validly inferred object, since it is the object inferred to ascertaining the three modes of valid evidence. And since it's taken as a position by a party in debate is the position, since it's taken as a proposition by a party in, de in debate is the proposition. These terms are all synonymous. All of this stuff is just sort of like... Uh, excessive, totally excessive, compulsive, obsessive, compulsive, <laughs> excessive, uh, laying the groundwork of all these different uh, possibilities. But let's see. In the view of the above, the presence of fire is referred to as the predicate of the thesis, thesis since it is the particular or universal feature of the thesis the existence of fire in the past. The smoky pass, <laughs> the smoky pass is the uh, locus of debate in that it's the locus in reference to which the proponent and opponent discuss whether there is fire. It's also referred to as the inferential locus since the smoky pass is the locus where the presence of fire is being inferred through inferential cognition of the thesis. Those two expressions, the logic of debate and the inferential locus, are synonymous. The locus of debate and the inferential locus refer to the same place or thing. All of this is from the perspective of the terminology used within the texts of pramana, the science of inferential reasoning. The thesis refers to something that is to be understood on the basis of appropriate evidence. It can be of two types. It can be a correct thesis, such as sound is impermanent, or a fallacious one, such as sound is permanent. What is known as a correct thesis is one that must be realized by valid inferential cognition, independence on correct reasoning or evidence. Within this category of a correctly reasoned thesis, there is a thesis for one's own purpose in the context of establishing a thesis by way of employing evidence by oneself and a correctly reasoned thesis in the context of the purpose of others. And a correctly reasoned thesis 
in the context of the purpose of others is known as a thesis for the purpose of others. Here in the following, we will discuss the notion of a thesis to be proven for the sake of others. This is the more elaborate uh, aspect of inferential reasoning. The definition of a thesis for the purpose of others is that which satisfies the five features proper form only intended himself and not refuted. The phrase proper form indicates that the object to be proven on that occasion is something, is actually something to be established. It must be something that has not already been ascertained by valid cognition of the opponent. The word only indicates that the disputants take it as something to be inferred and not as evidence. So we, the probandum can't be evidence. The probandum needs to be that which we're trying to prove. The word intended indicates that regardless of whether a disputant has verbally expressed it, it must be something that he accepts as the thesis to be inferred on the basis of that evidence. The word himself indicates that the disputant on that occasion must himself accept that object to be the thesis to be proven, and the phrase not refuted indicates that it must be refuted by valid cognition, must not be. In a summary of that, a valid thesis is one that is intended by the disputant himself as something to be stated in its proper form only. It is not refuted. Each feature stated here in the compendium of valid cognition has the purpose of both excluding something and including its opposite. The phrase in its proper form and the definition of a proof statement for the purpose of others excludes and includes as follows. In terms of exclusion, anything that has already been established by the opponent targeted by a specific argument is excluded from being a correct thesis of that specific argument because it's already been established. In terms of what is affirmed or included, if something is a correct thesis of a specific argument for the purpose of others, then it must not have been already established by the opponent targeted by the specific argument. This is the significance of the phrase, its proper form, which indicates the thesis is not established. I skipped a few words. The word only in the verse has the purpose of excluding and including the following. In terms of exclusion, evidence posited as the evidence for a specific argument and evidence with an unestablished example are excluded from being the correct thesis of that which of that specific argument in terms of what is included. If something is a correct thesis of a specific argument for the purpose of others, then it, it cannot at that time be posited as evidence. And this the significance of the word only. This again is a, this whole scheme is just like over over the top. The word intended, I'm skipping the word himself, the word, the phrase not refuted. In brief, so I'm on page 312, just before the end of this section, in brief to be a correct thesis for the purpose of others, one of them must, must not be established by the appropriate opponent's valid cognition. They must not have experienced it yet. It must not be something that's presently being used as a proof. This disputant must have the intention for it to be inferred, and the disputant must accept it to be the thesis, and it must not be refuted by valid cognition. 
there are two types of thesis, an explicit and an implicit. For example, in the argument of proving that sound is impermanent is evidenced by being produced. The explicit thesis is sound is impermanent. The implicit one is sound is not permanent. The inferential evidence, the explicit context of a proof statement. Inferential evidence is the actual means of ascertaining the thesis itself, as explained above. Since it's the only means of ascertaining a hidden phenomena, it is crucially important. Hidden phenomena are phenomena only, uh, which are revealed only by inferential valid cognition. Uh, the cognition of perceptible things is when a visual consciousness sees a form or an ordinary auditory consciousness hears a sound does not depend on the use of evidence. However, the cognition of hidden phenomena, so those are not hidden phenomena, sound and, and color or form, those are evident phenomena which do not depend on evidence. However, the cognition of hidden phenomena, such as a physical form being impermanent and momentary, must depend on reliable inferential evidence characterized by the three modes. Which we've been through a number of times, so I'm gonna skip the quote. And this, this stanza presents the three modes, the defining characteristics of correct inferential evidence. It also states that correct inferential evidence is only of three types. Effect evidence, nature evidence, and evidence consisting of non-perception which we went through earlier. It further states that the grounds for this classification lie in the fact that only two kinds of relations, intrinsic and causal, pertain to the invariable relation of unaccompanied non-occurrence, which is uh, a bizarre way of saying um, the occurrence of being accompanied or the, uh, the pervasions, basically. Finally, it states it states how the inverse of these three types of evidence is fallacious. In general, the definition of evidence is that which is deduced as evidence, that which is used as evidence. Uh, when applied to a specific case, the definition of evidence and the, the proof that sound is impermanent is that which is deduced as evidence and the proof that sound is impermanent. These guys have a very good sense of humor, I guess. The phrase, very dry, very dry sense of humor, the phrase, that which is deduced as evidence means the same as that which is posited as the reason. There's a reason for everything. For example, the existence of smoke is posited as a reason in the proof statement that there is fire on the mountain. The terms proof, evidence, reason, inferential evidence, and cause of understanding are all synonymous. There are two types of evidence, finally. Your Honor, I submit that there are two types of evidence, correct and fallacious evidence. The terms correct evidence, correct reason, and correct inferential evidence are all synonymous. The definition of correct evidence is that which is characterized by, you got it, the three modes. When applied to a specific case, the definition of correct evidence and the proof that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced is, that which is characterized by the three modes, modes proving that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced, for example, produces the evidence in the case of arguing sound is impermanent because it's produced. 
the three modes, the criteria of correct evidence in the context of science of inferential evidence. Any evidence that is capable of proving a thesis must satisfy the three modes supported by a quote from the introduction to entering into valid reasoning, which I'll skip. According to the source, the three modes are one, being an attribute of the subject of the thesis, two, the positive pervasion, and three, the negative pervasion. Sometimes the three modes are also referred to respectively as first, second, and third mode. For example, in the case of arguing that sound is impermanent, produced is an attribute of the thesis subject sound. And it stands in, in a relation of both positive and negative pervasion with respect to the predicate, which is impermanent, which is the sub, which is the, the uh, term impermanent or uh, feature property. Each of the three modes may be defined in their respective orders as follows in relation to a specific case. Apply to a specific case, the evidence being an attribute of the subject of the thesis and the proof that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced is defined as the ascertainment by valid cognition that in accord with the way the proof has been stated, the evidence, i.e. produced, is present in sound, which is the subject of the thesis sought to be proven which is the most long-winded way of saying that the uh, evidence needs to apply to the subject for the first mode. When a person has ascertained by valid cognition that sound is produced and then doubts whether sound is impermanent for that person, the evidence is established as an attribute of the subject of the thesis which is sound. In this case, sound is the subject of the thesis of interest, interest in the proof that sound is impermanent as evidenced by being produced. The positive pervasion in the proof that sound is impermanent as evidenced by being produced is defined as the ascertainment by valid cognition that in accord with the way the proof has been stated, the evidence is present in only the set of homologous cases owing to its relation to the predicate of the thesis to be proven. The negative pervasion in the proof that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced is defined as the ascertainment by valid cognition that in accord with the way the proof has been stated, the evidence is only absent in the set of heterogeneous cases owing to its relation to the predicate of the thesis to be proven. So uh, that's the positive, uh, those are the three modes, the subject quality, the positive, and the negative pervasions. With regard to establishing the positive pervasion and proof that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced, the opponent must ascertain by valid cognition the relation between producing and impermanent, and that produced is present only in something that is impermanent. Likewise, with regard to establishing the negative pervasion, the proof that sound is impermanent is evidenced by being produced, the opponent must ascertain by valid cognition the relation between produced and impermanent. And that produce is not present in anything that is permanent. When, when some given evidence is present only in the set of homologous cases in a proof, in a specific proof, it necessarily precludes its presence in the set of heterogeneous cases. Therefore, the positive pervasion and negative pervasion are mutually inclusive. 
Dharmakirti taught that the positive and negative pervasions of a specific argument can be realized either explicitly or implicitly by a single cognition. To establish both the positive and negative pervasions of a given proof statement, not only does this need to be preceded by three valid cognitions, subject, forward, and negative, but also ascertain the relation between the evidence and the predicate. The three valid cognitions being referred to here are valid ascertainment that the predicate of the propand, of the propand, probandum, i.e. the thesis, and the predicate of the negandum are directly contradictory. Secondly, valid ascertainment of the, of the evidence itself. And third, valid cognition that negates the evidence's presence in the predicate of the negandum the reverse provision. This may be explained by applying it to an example. The subject sounds is impermanent because it's produced an example as a pot. The three valid cognitions that must go before establishing the evidence, positive pervasion, or proof that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced are the following. Valid ascertainment that permanent and impermanent, which are respectively the predicate of the negandum and the predicate of the probandum, for that evidence are directly contradictory. Valid ascertainment of the evidence itself, namely produced and valid co cognition that negates the evidence produced to be present in the predicate of the negandum permanent. The same pattern applies to other instances. The term ascertainment is included in the definitions of the three modes for the following reasons. Taking the example of reasoning that sound is impermanent as evidence by being produced, the inclusion of the term ascertainment as part of the definition of the first mode, i.e. the attribute of the subject to the thesis of that argument, precludes produced from being unestablished evidence in the proof that sound is impermanent. Um, it precludes it because it is part of the um, predicate. Likewise, the inclusion of the term ascertainment as part of the definition of the second mode, the positive pervasion, precludes produced from being contradictory evidence in the proof that sound is impermanent. And including the term ascertainment as part of the definition of the third mode, the negative pervasion, precludes produced from being inconclusive evidence in the proof that sound is impermanent. Therefore, Dignong has said that the ascertainment of inferential evidence in terms of the three modes prevents unestablished, contradictory, and inconclusive evidence. Where there's no relation, there can be no ascertainment of the pervasions. Therefore, indicating this very point, he stated the ascertainment of the three modes by ascertaining the positive perversion, the contradictory, and those in its similar category are excluded by ascertaining the negative provision inconclusive and those in its similar category such as remainder evidence um, the evidence of that which remains after uh, after the uh, thesis is concluded are excluded. In general, the reason one can set forth a reliable presentation of evidence on the basis of establishing the invariable logical relations, to cut to the chase, is because the thesis is being proved on the basis of correct evidence that stands 
and the correct relation of, of unaccompanied non-occurrence with the present predicate. This means that when the pervaded is present, the pervader too is necessarily present. And when the pervader is absent, the pervaded too is necessarily absent. In other words, the three modes. Similarly, it's independence on a specific cause that an effect comes into being. And when the cause is absent, the effect too is necessarily absent. For example, on a smoky mountain pass in the east, one can infer the presence of fire when there's smoke. This is because smoke is related causally to fire. Similarly, for example, on a lake without a fire at night, at night, one can infer the absence of smoke where there is no fire, because there's no fire on the lake. The main point here is that there is a cause and effect relation between smoke and fire. Likewise, on the basis of, a pre of the presence of a juniper, one can prove the presence of a tree, and similarly, one can prove the absence of a juniper on the basis of the absence of any trees, because there exists an intrinsic relation <coughs> between trees and junipers of a nesting Russian doll variety of the third degree. For um, if there's no such relation, one cannot establish the positive and negative provisions. For example, you cannot prove that a person has horses with the evidence that he has cows. Similarly, you cannot prove that a person has no cows with the evidence that he does not have horses or horses. This is because there's no relation of unaccompanied occurrence between cows and horses, whereby one would not occur without the other, which is a nice, final way, finally a nice way of explaining what this unaccompanied non-occurrence is about, is that uh, talking about whether somebody has horses or not has no impact on whether they have cows or not. Uh, skipping the quotes, these are the components of the inference. The subject, sound, is impermanent <clears throat> because it's produced. The subject is sound, the predicate of the probandum. The probandum is that which is to be proved is impermanent. The evidence is it's produced. And the probandum, the thesis then, is that sound is impermanent. Phew. Chapter 20, Categories of Correct Evidence. In a general sense, is of three types, correct effect evidence, correct nature evidence, and correct evidence consisting in non-perception or non-observation from the perspective of the predicate of the probandum, and the predicate of the probandum is that which is to be proved about the subject. Uh, correct evidence is of two types, correct evidence for a negation or an affirmation. So there's basically two types of uh, correct evidence, the, uh, affirmation and ne negation. From the perspective of how the proof functions, however, correct evidence is of two types. Correct evidence proving the expression and correct evidence proving the things themselves. From the perspective of its thesis, correct evidence is of three types. Uh, it's odd they didn't explain that last statement yet. Well, maybe they will. Uh, from the perspective of its thesis, correct evidence is of three types. 
correct evidence based on empirical fact, correct evidence based on popular convention, and correct evidence based on trustworthy testimony. So those three sources of uh, evidence, of correct evidence, can be those three things. From the perspective of how it is present in similar cases or homologous cases, correct evidence is of two types. Correct evidence that is pervasively present in the set of similar cases and two correct evidence that is present in a subset of the set of similar cases. So either it's identical or it's a subset or uh, overlapping one, uh, no, included one is included in the other. From the perspective of the respondent, correct evidence is of two kinds, that for oneself and that for the purpose of others. All of these types of evidence categorized in various ways are subsumed within three types of correct inferential evidence, effect, nature, and non-perception, which began the paragraph. Dharmakirti's text called the Nyaya Bindu, the drop of reasoning states, there are only three types of evidence that are characterized by the three modes, non-perception, nature, and effect. Furthermore, correct evidence is confined to effect, nature, and non-perception because relations are confined to causal and intrinsic relations. In general, all forms of correct evidence fall into one of two categories, correct evidence for a negation and correct evidence for an affirmation. In the case of evidence for a negation, regardless of the kind of relation there is between the evidence and the predicate, insofar as it is negating evidence, it is evidence consisting in non-perception. So we have the two types of evidence, negating and affirming. Negating evidence is non-perception, and affirming evidence is um, nature and effect. In evidence used to affirm something, the relation between evidence and predicate must be either a causal relation or an intrinsic relation. Intrinsic relation is um, indicates that it's of the nature variety. The kind of evidence that establishes a causal relation are effects, and the kind of evidence that establishes the intrinsic relation is the thing's actual nature. Correct effect evidence, an effect used as evidence. The definition of correct evidence, effect evidence is that which is characterized by the three modes pertaining to an effect. An instance of something that is correct effect evidence in a specific proof is defined as follows. It is correct evidence for an affirmation in a specific proof and in the proof using object using this evidence there is something that is both the evidence's cause and the object taken as the explicit predicate of the probandum. Here the actual predicate of the probandum's effect is characterized by the three modes and is posited as the evidence. It is thus called correct effect evidence. For example, when smoke is posited as evidence in the proof of the existence of fire on a smoky mountain pass, that smoke is the effect of the fire that is in the proof, uh, sorry, that is the, the predicate of the probandum and is characterized by the three modes in the proof 
of the existence of fire located on the mountain pass. Thus, it is said to be characterized by the three effect modes. Uh, there are five types of correct evidence, effect evidence, correct effect evidence proving the actual cause, uh, that proving the, un, the uh, preceding cause, that proving a general cause, that proving a particular cause, and that proving, uh, sorry, and correct effect evidence inferring the causes attributes. Thus, these are types of effect evidence that prove respectively the actual cause, preceding cause, the mere existence of a cause, the existence of an additional cause, and the causes attributes. Regarding the effect evidence proving the actual cause, the Sutra of the Ten Dharmas says, just as fire is known from smoke and water from waterfowl, as illustrated by this citation, we can posit, for example, on a smoky mountain pass, there is fire because there is smoke. And in a place uh, in the east where there are waterfowl, there is water because waterfowl have been hovering about for a long time. An effect is inferential evidence for a cause in terms of that number of essential properties without which it could not occur. Sound. Sorry, second, regarding correct effect evidence proving a preceding cause, we can posit the following example. The awareness of a newborn infant is preceded by a prior awareness because it is an awareness. Now, this is obvious to all of you here in the West that um, sentient beings arise through the process of rebirth because they... Uh, something can't come out of nothing. So you can't say that awareness arises out of nothing, nor can you say that awareness arises out of matter. So awareness must have arisen from a prior awareness. The quote is, when uh, taking birth, respiration, the senses and awareness do not arise from the body alone without relying on something similar to themselves. So uh, the body is uh, sort of a supporting condition, but the direct cause is the prior moment of respiration, senses, and awareness. Third, regarding correct effect evidence proving a general cause, we can posit, for example, the aggregates that are characterized by suffering must have their own causes because they arise episodically. <laughs> The uh, neurosis arises episodically, in other words, uh, in episodes and seasons. Each season has a number of episodes, and those episodes are known as klesha uh, attacks. Klesha attacks. Because it is episodic, only occurs sometimes suffering is established to be caused. If it were not produced, if it were not uh, produced, then it would be either always present or always absent. Fourth, regarding correct effect evidence proving a particular cause, we can posit, for example, a um, 
A perceptual sense consciousness apprehended a form has another condition apart from its dominant condition and its immediately preceding condition because it does not arise through the mere fulfillment of its dominant condition and immediately preceding condition and it does nevertheless arise occasionally. What is the dominant condition for sense consciousness apprehending form? The visual sense faculty is the dominant condition. Thank you, Mary Beth. What is the immediately preceding condition of uh, sense consciousness apprehending form? The prior moment of uh, of consciousness is the immediately preceding condition. Does it have to be visual consciousness? No. No. If it did, then we would always have one type of consciousness or another. But it has to be a consciousness. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, since sense consciousnesses do not always occur when those when those causes are present, it can be inferred that there is some other cause lurking which gives rise to them when they do arise. Fifth, regarding correct effect evidence inferring the causes attributes, we can posit, for example, in a lump of brown sugar in the mouth. There's mm. <laughs> a song about that, isn't there? The causal complex that produced the preceding taste of the sugar has the ability to cause the present form of the sugar because there is now the taste of sugar. The preceding moment of the sugar is the substantial cause of the next moment of the sugar. And we can deduce that because we, we tasted sugar in the last moment of consciousness and we taste sugar in the present moment of consciousness. Skipping the quote here, the cause refers to the preceding moment of the substantial cause of the taste, which is the lump of sugar. And the attributes refers to capacity of the causal complex that includes the earlier taste to generate the substant, subsequent rather instance of form. Since it, is a, it establishes that such a capacity is present in the lump of brown sugar in one's mouth, <laughs> This is an odd example, but a sufficient one. It is called effect evidence inferring the causes attributes. Also, the earlier taste of sugar is the direct substantial cause of the later taste, which is a sense consciousness. And it is the direct cooperative condition of the later sugar's form. And the earlier sugar's form is the direct substantial cause of the later sugar's form because it is the substance for both earlier and later moments of the lump of sugar is its form. And it's the direct cooperative condition of the latter sugar's taste because it cooperates with the dominant and the immediately preceding condition of this taste consciousness. Therefore, both the taste and the form of the sugar establishes having a relation dependent on a single direct causal complex, which is the prior moment of lump of sugar in the mouth. 
In general, as part of the presentations of effect evidence in the epistemological text, there are extensive discussions about lumps of sugar, no, I'm sorry, about the validation of the causal relation between fire and smoke. This is not simply to help one understand the causal relationship between fire and smoke. The aim of such a presentation is to use the relationship between fire and smoke as an illustration so that one can understand the nature of causal relation in the case of all instances of cause and effects, whether they are part of the external world or, or they are part of the internal world of our experience. And that concludes the effect um, evidence. Then we have nature, correct nature evidence. A thing's nature is used as evidence in court of law. The definition of correct nature evidence is that, with, that which is characterized by the three modes in terms of intrinsic nature applied to a specific case. The definition of correct nature evidence in a specific proof is as follows. Some per some X rather is correct evidence for an affirmation in a specific proof. And whatever is held to be the explicit predicate of the probandum. And the predicate of a probandum is that which is to be proven by the statement or probandum. And that proof is necessarily of the same nature as X. We can posit, for example, sound is impermanent because it's produced. Konnikovarna's past practice, as a lawyer says, all phenomena that have arisen even slightly are subject to cessation soon, sooner or later. Um, Dignanga says, a natural property is evidence for another natural property that is invariably congruent, sorry, concomitant with the mere presence of the property used as evidence, i.e. nature evidence. There are two types of correct nature evidence, correct nature evidence involving qualification and correct nature evidence free of qualification. The definition of correct nature evidence involving qualification and specific proof is, it is correct nature evidence and a specific proof where the term expressing it implies an agent as its qualifying feature, an agent. We can posit, for example, the sound of a conch is impermanent because it arises from effort. The definition of correct nature evidence free of qualification and specific proof is it is correct nature evidence in a specific proof where the term expressing it does not apply an agent as its qualifying feature. We can posit, for example, sound is impermanent because it's a real thing as opposed to the sound of a conch. Moreover, the world, the words rather, arises from effort, imply a living being as an agent, because effort comes about from uh, living beings, an activity um, that arises without effort is not produced by living beings. When adduced as evidence of natural or natural property, whether depending on the particular contingent condition or on its own, is stated to prove the probandum. For example, either the fact of being an effect or existence are stated to prove inherent disintegration because the, that immediately fires from follows existence. This discusses nature evidence that 
is stated in order to prove the probandum. In the case of those involving qualification, the very words that express the evidence depend upon implying its particular agent as a qualifying feature, such as stating that sound is an effect as the evidence to prove that sound inherently disintegrates it. Evidence that stands alone does not depend upon such implications, such as positing a functioning thing's existence as the evidence for its disintegration. Um, it's uh, merely its existence. Buddhist epistemological texts explain that a produced thing is intrinsically connected to its disintegration from the very moment it comes into being. For a produced thing to disintegrate requires no other cause than the cause that gave rise to it. Rather, the very cause of its existence guarantees its disintegration or your money back. It is along these lines that Buddhist epistemological treatises present present rather the topic of nature evidence extensively in order to establish all conditioned things as impermanent and to explain the theory of exclusion or apoha in a detailed manner. Exclusion or apoha is the process of conceptual uh, isolation of a general idea or a generally characterized phenomena, which is something that does not disintegrate immediately and to identify the intrinsic relation and its meaning. Um, in brief, nature evidence refers to evidence for an affirmation where the evidence and the predicate have the same intrinsic nature. Finally, correct evidence consisting of non-perception. The definition of correct evidence consisting of non-perception is that which is characterized by the three modes pertaining to non-perception when applied to a specific case, the definition of correct evidence consisting in non-perception in a specific proof is, it is correct evidence in a specific proof where there occurs a common locus of a negation and the object held is the explicit predicate of the probandum and the proof of that probandum by the evidence. <laughs> it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, uh, let's see. A specific proof where there occurs a common locus of a negation and the object held as the explicit predicate of the probandum in the proof of that probandum by the evidence. If there's a negation in the locus, uh, then we can posit, for example, on a lake without fire at night, there's no smoke because there's no fire. Non-perception. Having seen this fact, the Tathagata gave the following teaching which uh, hopefully raised some eyebrows. A person should not judge another. Were a person to judge another, that person would be harmed. Very socially conscious, right, these days. Social justice, that nobody should judge. We shouldn't judge each other, right? Unless, however, you are the Buddha, and then you can, then uh, only the Buddha can judge. Only I and others like who are like me can judge other people. <laughs> So only uh, somebody who's enlightened can judge other people. If you're not enlightened, no, that's why we're all Buddhas because we all judge. <laughs> oh, that's a that's an incorrect proof statement because <laughs> which which mode of uh, of the three modes is missing there? We are all Buddhas because we all judge, and uh, I'd say all three modes. <laughs> <laughs> or failure, it fails. 
uh, the the exposition says in all cases negations are affected through non-perception. So earlier we had two types of uh, evidences, positive or affirming and negative or negating. And the positive is uh, produced by either effect or nature and the negative is produced by non-perception. Because for those who speak of existence as established by valid cognitions, the opposite establishes non-existence by implication, i.e. the absence of valid cognition. There are two types of correct existence, uh, sorry, evidence consisting in non-perception. Correct evidence consisting in non-perception of the imperceptible and correct evidence consisting in non-perception of the perceptible. In the case of evidence consisting in non-perception of the imperceptible, a referent of the predicate of the negandum, even though it exists, is not perceptive, all rather, to the opponent. In the case of evidence consisting in non-perception of the perceptible, if that object existed, it would be perceptible to the opponent. Furthermore, each of these has two types. Each of these has two types. Evidence consisting in non-perception of a related object with the negation of an object related to the predicate of the negandum is adduced as evidence. And evidence consisting in the perception of something not, not having to do with your relatives, where the perception of something contradictory to the predicate of the of the negandum is adduced as evidence. The definition of correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of the imperceptible in a specific proof is, is that what they say on uh, that TV show? Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, that that game show where you you uh, um, you used the joke the other night, Mary Beth. What is where? What where is Jeopardy? Right. <laughs> That's the form of the response. That's great. What is Jeopardy? Thank you very much. It is correct evidence consisting in non-perception and a specific proof where it is the case both that in the proof with this as its evidence, the referent of the predicate and the gandam exists in general and that for the person who has ascertained that this evidence is an attribute of the subject in that proof, the referent of the predicate and the gandam is imperceptible. That's gotta be one of my favorite all-time sentences. We can posit, for example, regarding the space in front of oneself, it is not reasonable for a person for whom a ghost is an imperceptible thing to claim this is a ghost. There's a ghost. <laughs> so if you're somebody that can't see ghosts, then you can't say that there are no ghosts here. Nothing? Tough crowd tonight. <laughs> the, Okay. Um, uh, because a person for whom a ghost is an imperceptible thing has not perceived a ghost with valid cognition ever. The non-occurrence of valid cognitions results in non-engagement with the non-existent. In general, things are imperceptible because of their spatial location, their temporal location, their nature, and so on. In the present context, since ghosts are by their very nature very subtle, they remain imperceptible to some people and are not ascertained by their valid cognition. 
So it would be imperceptible for such a person to make any claim about the presence or absence of ghosts. Um, in the same manner, it would be unreasonable for ordinary beings to claim that all things exist in such and such a way, while their valid cognition does not ascertain such a truth. Does that mean that it's inappropriate for people like us to say that all phenomena are empty? Because we haven't perceived it yet, you mean? Yeah, by valid cognition. That's a question. Uh, let's see. Similarly, it would be inappropriate for persons to make allegations about such and such faults in others while they have not ascertained through valid cognition the presence of those faults in others. In this and other ways, it is shown that it is not right to engage in acts of exaggeration or denial while one does not see through one's own valid cognition what is actually the case. So you can talk about your own faults, not other people's faults. Correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of the perceptible. Uh, we'll do a little bit of this. The definition of correct evidence consisting in non-perception of the perceptible and a specific proof is it is correct evidence consisting in non-perception of a specific proof where if, if the reverend referent rather of the predicate of the negandum and that proof existed on the basis of negation it would appear to the opponent there are two types correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of something perceptible that is related and correct evidence consisting in the perception of something perceptible that is contradictory some instances of non-perception result in knowledge of actual absence, says the exposition of valid cognition, on the basis of specific types of evidence. There are four kinds of non-perception that prove the absence of something. Those that prove, one, the perceptible presence of something contradictory to the negandum, or two, the perceptible effect of something contradictory, and those that prove the presence of a perceptible three cause or four nature. The disprove, sorry. The definition of correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of something perceptible that is related is correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of something perceptible or the negation of something related to the predicate of the negandum in that proof is adduced as the evidence. And there are four types of this, which is the first of four types. Non-perception of a non-perceptible cause, non-perception of a perceptible pervader. <laughs> Perceptible pervader for five points. Non-perception of a perceptible nature. Non-perception of a perceptible immediate effect. These are posited in terms of the, the adducing as evidence. These are posited in terms of the adducing as evidence. The negation of the cause, pervader, essential nature, immediate effect of the predicate of the negandum. Illustrations of these four respectively are as follows. First, there is no fire in the case of positing on a lake without fire at night. There's no smoke 
because there's no fire. Here in the negation of fire, the cause of the smoke, which is the predicate of the negandum, is deduced as evidence and is correct evidence. Thus it is called correct evidence consistent in the non-perception of a perceptible cause. The second is illustrated by there are no trees. In the case of positing on a rocky cliff without trees, there are no Ashoka trees because there are no trees. Here the presence of a tree is a pervader of the presence of an Ashoka tree, which is the predicate of the Nagandam, and the negation of the presence of trees in general is deduced as evidence that there's no presence of the subset of Ashoka trees. And it is correct evidence, thus it is called correct evidence consisting of non-perception of a perceptible pervader which is relevant to situations where you know that there's there could not be things of a certain nature and therefore there could not be a particular thing that partakes of that nature. The third is illustrated by a pot is not perceived in the case of positing in a place where a pot is not perceived by valid cognition. A pot does not exist because it's not a pot is not perceived by valid cognition. Here the negation of a pot perceived by valid cognition, the essential nature of an existent pot, which is the predicate of the negandum, is adduced as evidence, and it is correct evidence. Thus it is called correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of a perceptible nature. Fourth is there's no smoke in that, sorry, there's no smoke that is its immediate effect in the case of positing in a roofless enclosure without smoke the immediate unobstructed cause of smoke does not exist because there's no smoke that is its immediate effect the negation of smoke the immediate effect of its immediate unobstructed cause which is the predicate of the negandum is adduced as evidence and it is correct evidence thus it is called correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of a perceptible immediate effect the uh, predicate of the negandum is that which is being negated by a negative proof statement, by the way. The definition of correct evidence consisting in the perception of something perceptible that is contradictory is correct evidence consisting in the non-perception of something perceptible where the perception of something that contradicts the predicate of the negandum in that proof is adduced as evidence. There are two types of correct evidence consisting in the perception of something contradictory in the sense of being contradic contrary and correct evidence consisting in the perception of something contradictory in the sense of being mutually exclusive. The distinction of, between these expre is expressed in the exposition as follows, a contradictory quality, whether different or not different, can be used in a non-perception inference. For example, fire improving the absence of snow, which is different in nature and therefore contrary, and existence to refute arising same nature and mutually exclusive. And uh, there I rest my case, which is the predicate of a negative pro uh, probandum which is that um, we should stop. <laughs> and we made it to page 328, which I believe exceeds what I wrote in the, in the uh, reading reminder by two pages, because I made a mistake in the reading reminder. And mistakes are, are mistakes uh, positive or negative evidence?
they are not evidence. <laughs> anyway, comments, questions, suggestions, responses. Well, it depends what you're trying to establish. A mistake could be evidence. A mistake could be evidence. Let's let's use that as our takeaway and begin there next week with a mistake. It's called mistaken evidence. Mistaken <laughs> evidence. Like I, I said, I could prove I could predicate that I am an imperfect person because I just made a mistake. I accept. And what's what's the uh, subject of the of the probandum? Uh, I. And what's the uh, predicate? Uh, I am predicating that I am imperfect. And what's the evidence? The mistake I just made. And is that an effect type of evidence or in nature? Oh, it's it's. It's na nature. It's like the tree and it's nature, isn't it? Yeah, it's nature, right? Definitely, it's nature. And is it a, uh, a positive affirming statement or is it a negating? I think it's positive and affirming because we had evidence of the thing and then we have evidence. Of, I think it's all positive. Except that we can't perceive you, so there's a catch. <laughs> There you go, <laughs> with the two cats and the broken down building. Anyway, thank you. That was good. On that uh, fine, on the fine note of the predicate of the negative probandum, we shall conclude with the supporting evidence of the dedication of merit. <clears throat> Is there evidence that there's actually merit that can be dedicated? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. See you next week for more of the same for a little while. We have, let's see, one more, maybe two more classes of reasoning. And then we get to meditation. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. See you soon. Thank you. Good night.